0: Politics, clear and simple, with your host, Dr. Greg Robert Rabidoo. Rabide, <laughs> okay, welcome to the show where I make the unclear clear, I make the complex simple, I make the impossible possible, and in short, I make politics clear and simple, just like The Introduction Says, and I'm your host, Dr. Greg Rabideau.
1: And there is progress because we, the people, have the power to build a better future.
0: Folks, the people of this nation have spoken. They've delivered us a clear victory, a convincing victory, a victory for we the people. Okay, so seven days after our presidential election of November 3rd, today being November 10th, I am going to share with you my seven takeaways from our recent election. Here we go. Number one takeaway. Number one takeaway is that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party seem to have switched They have. Did you ever see the the movies, those crazy 80s movies where somebody was always switching into somebody else's body? You always had some adult switching into like a 12-year-old and the 12-year-old switching into the adult and they learned from each other. And there were laughs and there were tears and there were cries and there was joy. And at the end, they switched back having become better people. Okay, look, I don't know if that's exactly what's happening, but if you look at the numbers and you look at where the support came politically during this election which really built on 2016, the Republicans have today a much more stronger argument that they are the party of the middle class and the party of the working class and the party of the tradespeople than the Democrats, who have a stronger argument of being the party of big tech, of corporate giants, of the media, of executives in that media, lawyers doctors professional people academicians and elites in general and this was not always the way folks if you're fairly new to politics and you go yeah this is okay wasn't this the way it was in 2016 this was never the way it was up until very very recently the republican party was known as the bunch of folks that seemed to hang out at those exclusive country clubs. They had those crazy navy blue blazers they wore with brass buttons, and they seemed to always have a lot of money, and they were always playing golf. And the Democrats seemed to be the working class, and when you talked about people that worked in factories or worked 8, 10, 12-hour shifts and were in unions, you talked about Democratic Party. Many moons ago, my grandfather was a state representative for the state of Connecticut. He was a Democrat, and this was his orientation. This was his perspective. This was the world he inhabited and the, the world that inhabited him politically. But so much has changed over the last few decades. And if you look at the numbers, Donald Trump actually increased his numbers as a Republican candidate with Latinos, Hispanics overall, blacks, Asian americans uh lgbtq voters middle class lower income and high school educated and again folks those for many decades were the absolute strong base and sort of the new deal coalition which fdr in the 1930s put together on behalf of the democrats which held firm for at least three to four decades for the democratic party if not five decades So number one takeaway is Democrats and the Republicans seem to be jumping on each other. Sort of the Democrats are jumping on the the elephant for a ride and the Republicans are trying out the donkey for a ride. It's going to be bumpy for both of them either way. Here we go. Number two takeaway. Uh, Number two takeaway for 2020 seemed to be that Americans, at least about half of us, embraced the message of Donald Trump, if not the man. So what some in the media are calling Trumpism, everything is an ism in politics, as we know. What they're saying is Trumpism is, quite honestly, conservative populism, conservative values, just with a much broader appeal than ever before for the Republican Party. So that message of it's about the economy and it's about jobs, and it's about employment, and it's about breaking records of low employment for people of color and women, if it's about trying to develop a strong national security, if it's about uh, immigration and making sure the borders are secure, on a number of these issues, which traditionally have been conservative ideas, Many of them held true in this election, despite projections that it was going to be a complete and utter repudiation of everything, the baby in the bathwater, the message, and the man. So my number two takeaway from the 2020 election is Americans seem to want at least some of those things, but at the same time, they want really, really good affordable health care. And at the same time, they don't necessarily want business to strangle the earth but they don't want regulations to strangle business growth and they want jobs but they don't necessarily want jobs at the cost of civility and they want law and order but they also want our institutions to be transparent and trained and not be embodiments of racism So at the same time, where more Americans in this election said, yes, law and order is very important to us, and watching on TV the the rioting and the looting that went in so many of our cities scared so many Americans, at the same time, though, they want reform and they want unarmed black men to stop being shot. So in short, related to my number two takeaway, which is just simply... It's just not so black and white, literally. It's much more in the gray area. Americans don't just want one or the other. Yes, being Americans, we want it all. And maybe that's not unreasonable in this context. But one thing was for sure, while many Americans still support and would probably crawl on their broken glass on their knees to support and vote for President Trump, if given the opportunity, A large percentage, certainly, of Americans felt that the message was what they liked, but at times the man was not at all what they liked, or at least how he expressed that message. Civility seems to be something that Americans across the political aisle want more of. We shall see if that becomes a reality. My third takeaway, number three, is And it's really two parts. Number one is if you are a pollster, if that's what you do as a profession. In other words, if you were trained to use scientific method and a scientific approach to ask people questions and then predict and project how they are going to vote on a certain issue or a certain candidate before they actually vote, please... I'm almost begging you, find a different profession. There are lots of wonderful jobs that are opening up in this economy. Hopefully, once we get past COVID-19, there's going to be a lot of really solid jobs that you can do. My goodness, restaurants always need people that are attentive and friendly and ask nice questions. And like, for example, may I tell you the special of the day? Or maybe they can ask really good questions like, may I take your plates from you? Or... Are you having dessert tonight? You get what I'm driving at. Pollsters, ah, meh. I've had enough of pollsters up to here. They got it wrong in 2016. They said they'd change their methods. They didn't. I've talked about this ad nausea in other podcasts. And really for years, I've tried to explain what is wrong with polling. Hint. Hint. You can't just be polling a certain amount of persons or a certain type of people. You can't just be, say, trying to go use landlines when no one's using landlines anymore in America. The bottom premise or the bottom line is this. Pollsters got it wrong yet again. They have zero credibility, and until they figure out what they're doing wrong and fix it, there's zero reason why I need to listen to them. Number four, my fourth takeaway, um, which is kind of related to my number three, and that is our voting system needs to be fixed. Um, uh, the great news is that over 144, 145 uh, million Americans voted in this past election. That is fantastic. The not-so-great news is it's it, it was messy, not nearly as messy, thankfully, as predictions uh, by folks like President Trump himself, but there's a lot to fix with how we vote for a candidate on a net na- for a national office in the year 2020 um my next let's see what am i up to i'm up to i think what number four or five i lost count but here we go uh joe biden had better be nimble he had better be nimble Um, Because he is going to have to balance a very hungry, aggressive, progressive part of his wing of his party, which wants trillion dollar deals, which wants trillion, multi-trillion dollar programs, which wants a whole lot of things, and they want it now. And they are led by folks with a lot of energy and who are quite popular, folks like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and... Her supporters, the people that are like minded with her Rashid Chalib, Ilhan Omar, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. Um, These are folks who now say, okay, our time is come, our time is now. Uh, We're done being patient, bucko. We're here and we want what we want. And that's why we gave you, Biden, the support. On the other hand, Biden has moderates. Um, folks of the party like a Jim Clyburn out of North Carolina who say, no way are we going to the left. Um, things like socialism and things like defund the police and abolish the police almost cost us this election. I'm going to play a soundbite now. And this is of a conference call that was leaked. ...of a conference call between Democratic leadership, including the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and a Democratic congresswoman, Spanberger out of Virginia, right after the election results came in. She can say it better than I as far as uh, the issue surrounding uh, some of the election fallout for the Democrats. What I'm
1: about to say, I ask that my colleagues not relate to them, if someone has just conferred in Money Raju or Jake Sherman, gentlemen, this is off the record. Um, I think that we need to be pretty clear about the fact that Tuesday, from a congressional standpoint, it was a failure. It was not a success. We need to your colleagues come and go. This isn't an issue of me being a first-term member and emotionally concerned about the fact that colleagues have left. Um, this is me recognizing that we lost members from Hillary's district. This is about me recognizing that we lost members who shouldn't have lost. Um, I was Request that at some point in the future as a pocket we spend time watching the attack as the millions upon millions upon millions of dollars that were spent shellacking so many of us across our districts, that we look at the things that they say about us.
0: My next takeaway, which is the myth of the mandate. In politics, we talk a lot about, and of course, whoever wins talks a lot about the mandate that he or she just got. So even if you win by vote, you're like, the voice of the people have spoken, and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. It's a myth. We have had so few political mandates in this country, it's it's almost laughable. What almost always happens in this country, we are deeply divided in a number of issues, and whoever wins really doesn't, even if they win more electoral votes, even if they win a good deal of electoral votes, it doesn't necessarily mean they won a landslide to do a what they consider a mandate. In other words... Joe Biden can talk about the mandate. Nancy Pelosi has already said it's a clear and utter, unquestionable mandate. Really? Uh, 145 million people voting and the issue surveys, which tend to be much more accurate than the who you're going to vote for type polls, indicate that as Americans, we are, again, deeply divided in a number of issues. And like I said just a minute or two ago, we want a number of things, we just don't necessarily want all of one or all of the other side. We kinda wanna take what's best from the right and left and put it together in some sort of package that we can all live with. So this idea that you won by whatever you won by, one to two percentage points on average in a presidential election, now you have a clear mandate to run roughshod over everything and get all your agenda in, whether it's Trump or Biden, is a myth. You still have to govern which brings me to my next takeaway, which is related to that point. Georgia is the political epicenter. The devil went down to Georgia. He was looking. Okay, I don't know if the devil's going down to Georgia, but I know the Democrats are going in down to Georgia, the Republicans are going down to Georgia, and there's gobs of cash following them wherever they go. And I say this because the control of the U.S. Senate comes down to really two races. Right now there are three races in the U.S. Senate. Again, just to refresh, there are 100 U.S. Senators. Because or if it stays the way, and it looks like it will, as Joe Biden being the president and Kamala Harris being the vice president, by the Constitution, if you have 50 U.S. senators vote one way and you have 50 U.S. senators, makes up 100, vote another way, by the U.S. Constitution, whoever is in the White House as the vice president can break that 50-50 tie. So, if it's 50-50, I'm assuming, Kamala Harris will break the tie every single time in favor of what the Democrats want. The Democrats have the majority in the U.S. House, and if they have the presidency and the vice presidency, and they can break the tie in the Senate for all practical purposes, they would have control over all three uh, chambers, House, Senate, executive branch, presidency. So, they'd be pretty much, except for the U.S. Supreme Court in a, probably a few handful of major cases— that may be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court, they would pretty much be able to dictate the terms of what they want. So it comes down to three races right now. Uh, Currently, because November 10th, literally today, just about two hours ago, the Democratic challenger for North Carolina, Cal Cunningham, conceded to the incumbent in North Carolina, the Republican Senator Tom Tillis. Tillis was up by about two or three percentage points. Um, They were having a recount, but it became clear that just uh, Cunningham was not going to get enough votes overturned, and there was still a pretty good margin of victory for Tillis, and so Cunningham did the classy thing, although legally it's not uh, mandatory or obligated to concede, but he did, and so that seat goes to Republicans. So currently as we sit here, it is 49 U.S. Senate seats for the Republican Party and 48 seats for the Democratic Party with three left to be decided. One is in Alaska, which looks clearly like it's going to be a Republican win, so that would be 50-48. So for the Democrats to go to a Kamala Harris tiebreaker, they would have to win both runoff seats, Senate seats in Georgia. Georgia's a little different than most states. That is, you don't just, it's not a winner-take-all. So if you win by a vote, you don't get the seat. If you if whoever wins does not get at least 50% of the overall vote, there's a runoff between the first place finisher and the second place finisher. So you have in Georgia, you have two Senate races. You have Kelly Loeffler, who was appointed when the Republican Senator Johnny Isaacson retired. There was a few months to go before the election. So uh, Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, Republican appointed Kelly Loeffler, who was and still is, the wife of a very uh, wealthy donor to the Republican Party. So she gets the Senate seat. She holds it for a few months, and then she actually has to go on the ballot and run against um, her opponent, which is Raphael Warnock, who is an African-American Democrat candidate and a pastor in Georgia. Um, Neither one gets 50% for that matter. Neither one got 40%. There are about 22 other candidates running. It was amazing, right, for the seat. So they're going to have the runoff. So it's Leffler against Warnock, and we'll see who wins there. It's probably going to be pretty tight. Uh, Leffler is given a little bit of an advantage in the second Georgia Senate U.S. Senate seat. You have incumbent David Perdue, a Republican, running against uh, Democratic ch- challenger John Ossoff, and uh, there's already been a ton of money that's spent spent in these races uh well over 200 million dollars have already been spent in these races and because the democrats so much understandably want control of the u.s senate as well as the house and the presidency there are predictions that it looks like there's going to be another 75 to 100 million dollars spent in georgia in just the next few weeks to try to persuade georgians to go democrat in at least one if not both of those races um the race as far as David Perdue and Asaf. Uh, Perdue looked actually like he was going to win straight out on election night, but he dipped just a little below 50%. He's at about 49.8%, and Asaf is about 37 to 38%. So while it could change, um, the betting money says that one of those races, probably the Purdue race, will go Republican. The Alaska race is probably. Going to go Republican. So, my best guess is it's going to be 51 49 in the US Senate. So, Kamala Harris' tiebreaker actually won't come into um, existence, although I have been wrong about things before. My last takeaway, number seven, and I'm going to dig into this one in just a moment as well, which is the Democratic Party, by their own polling, their own polling now, and their own predictions. Looked that and were pretty confident that they were going to increase the majority they have in the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, They predicted anywhere from 15, they would take and win a net gain of anywhere 15 to 25 new U.S. House seats. Um, It didn't happen. In fact, just the opposite happened. And not just the opposite, but what makes it even more interesting is that if 2018 was indeed the year of the Democratic women, In other words, 89 women were elected to the US House of Representatives in the year 2018. In the year 2020, this election that we just had seven days ago, you had a record number, which would turn out to be a record number of uh, Republican women, conservative women, being elected to the US House. Clearly, a woman's place is in the House and the Senate, and they won in liberal states like Minnesota, they won in moderate states, and they won in traditionally conservative states like Oklahoma. Um, in one particularly important race in South Florida, Maria Elvira Salazar won against her opponent, and she was outspent something like 8-1 to one by Democrats. I told you the parties were switching. Every one of these races, I'm telling you, Democrats had much more money to spend. And traditionally, folks, if you haven't been following this, that has not been historically the case. So conservative women picked up a great deal of momentum in this House race and really beat the odds here. So on the heels of a conservative woman being confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court, you have a record number of conservative women being elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. Now, to put that in perspective, though, in terms of population, uh, women still have a long ways to go for a number of reasons in terms of representation in the in Congress. Uh, there are now uh, looks like there's going to be about 115 women in a Congress. Um, Uh, u.s house representatives of 435 that's about 115 out of 435 and 26 women out of 100 u.s senators and of course kamala harris making history as the first woman vice president but in terms of internationally it sounds like progress and it sure is in terms of gender equality and representation and diversity but u.s still ranks 75th out of 193 nations In the world in terms of gender equality when it comes to political representation and and honestly folks one of the most simple reasons for all this is just women win more seats when more women run so when more women are recruited strategically by each party when more money is is raised to support women as candidates and more women decide to run they more women win and it, I mean, I don't want to oversimplify it, but it isn't rocket science when it comes to the numbers. It's kind of like sales. The more people that you actually make sales presentations to, the greater your chances you will actually sell something. And the more women that run in, whether it's for the House or the Senate, more women will win. For example, um, Cynthia Lemics from Wyoming, uh, became the a conservative, a Republican woman, became the first woman uh, U.S. senator to ever represent the great state of Wyoming this past election. So we have a number of interesting and I think some fascinating things that, that we've discussed. Those are my seven takeaways. Okay, so absolute last final thought, last word coming up in just a second. So in sports, I'm sure you've heard the saying that you're only as good as your last touchdown pass. You're only as good as your last strikeout. You're only as good as your last winning shot you made. What have you done for us? What have you done for the fans? What have you done for your team? Not just lately, but like now, like today. And I think of that a little bit when I come to, it seems like every election, we are told that the upcoming election is truly the most dramatic, the most Teutonic plate-shifting election in our nation's history, that it is the most important, and what you do will have dire consequences one way or the other. And then we have the election, and then the new president and new vice president take office, and all the new nationally elected folks take office, whether they're in the House or Senate, And all of your local officials, whether it's governors or mayors or councilmen or councilwomen, state senators, state representatives, judges, take office. And then before you know it, you're hard at work. You're trying to take care of yourself, take care of your family, go to school, get an education, finish that degree, get a promotion. And you find yourself right up against a new election. And you're told, once again, it's the most important, it has the most dire consequences and the incredible entire history of the United States will literally rest on the balance of your shoulders of who you vote for. And look, I don't want to diminish or demean the importance of any one election. And I don't want to demean or diminish the importance of participation in democracy. In fact, participation by all of us is absolutely crucial to a democracy. It's one of those things that separates us from a communist nation or authoritarian nation, a dictatorship, where even if you wanted to, you can't participate. You do what you're told. And so I would just simply offer that every election is certainly important, but it's also what you do in between elections that is equally, if not more important. The vigilance that we all spend in terms of making sure our democracy does not erode that our rights are not taken away from us by anyone for any reason, and for keeping all those who are in power, who at least say that they're there to represent us, the people, that no matter what party they're in, are held accountable by what they say and what they do. I don't care, personally, whether it's a man or a woman, uh, skin color, no skin color, age, as long as you're legal and you can actually run and win, don't care, don't care, and don't care. It's wonderful in many ways to see our country hopefully getting more representative, and I hope it continues that. But here's my point. Ultimately, I don't care in the sense of whoever you are, you need to be held accountable by the people that put you in office. And so I will just share that the one concern certainly I have is I hope for a much more hmm, objective and aggressive and tough-minded media to do their job to everybody, Republican, Democrat, anything in between. Tough questions should be asked of everybody who at any point says, the American people want such and such, really. Then the questions should begin to that person. How do you know that? What's your plans? Did you do what you say? If you didn't, why not? If you're going to, when? Doesn't matter. We need a very strong and independent media to ask the tough questions of anyone who professes to represent you or me in elected office. And so until next time.
1: Adios. Hasta luego.